I am so grateful when artists give us their brain. Oh. They unzip their skulls a little bit and we're just like, here's the mushy parts of me. Mm-hmm. Here's the pieces that, you know, I write into these stories. And if you look at me other stories, you'll find those veins there too. listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Hey, Chad. Hello, Veronica. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. How are you doing? <laughs> doing okay. Yeah. I was just saying before we got on here, just uh, getting the first snow of the year here a little early. So Horrible. Not enough to cause school closings or anything like that, but enough to have it look kind of nice outside. So that is the weather update. <laughs> That's great. We should always have a weather segment. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's got to be two or three people out there like, I wonder what the weather's like at the moment they're recording this for chat. Yeah, at the time (laughs) of recording, what's it like outside (laughs) on opposite sides of the country? But that's just when you ask me how I'm doing, I'm facing looking a window and I'm always like, what am I doing? How am I doing? I'm like, oh, yeah, the weather. It's getting to be that time of year. Which time? Depression? Uh, no, no, the holiday time. We just, I mean, everything kind of just gets more... We're st- saying the same thing. Yeah, okay. It gets more stressful in general for everybody uh, in all directions. So, But yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here talking about a movie that I really love um, mm. that I hadn't seen before. And so um, oh. it, was a, it was a special treat. Yeah, I, I don't know, but, but what's, what's going on with you? Um, not a ton. I am like a week out from finishing the semester. Oh, nice. Yeah. Next week we have our last two films and I try to end on like as purely fun a note as possible. Oh, that's great. You know, to kind of like the equivalent of a pizza party or something. (laughs) We just did The Searchers and Johnny Guitar. Oh, wow. Talking about the Western and genre, which reminds me that I need to put up on the canvas, this video of Alex Trebek saying genre. It's a super cut. One of my absolute <laughs> favorites of him like correctly slash over pronouncing genre over and over and over. Um, anyway, and then next week we're doing genre hybridity. So we're doing Tempopo and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night as two oh, wow. like weirder Westerns. So yeah. I don't think a lot of my students have seen either film. And they're pretty cinephilic, so I think it's going to wow. be as exciting a final week as one can have when you're mostly just barreling toward um, obliteration. Oh, yeah. What a treat. <laughs> yeah, and Tampopo is, will it be around a mealtime that you're screening that? Because that, that might oh, just make everybody yeah. very hungry. That's true. <laughs> I wish we could do like a ramen place buyout afterwards. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cute? That'd be a real end of year party, yeah. That's the final. It's like, how accurately do you eat your bowl of ramen? <laughs> how good at slurping are you? Yeah, wonderful movie though. Um, and I know I've said that before, but it, your, your classes always sound great. I would love to have, have a time machine one way or the other to somehow end up in one of your classes. They sound fantastic. Aww, thanks. The, the care you take in curating the, the films, it's always just great. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Sure. Thanks, bud. I've been in good film classes and bad film classes. So. Me too, I guess. Yeah. Yours sounds like one that I would not be <laughs> bored in ever. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I definitely see some sleepy faces, even though I teach from 11 to 11.50 a.m. <laughs> 
No excuses. It's early for the, some college students. I know. guess. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was pretty good. You know, went home, saw the family, kind of switch off every other year. So it was, it was my family's turn this year. But okay. uh, the COVID times had uh, disrupted, obviously, some of that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. actually the first time I'd been able to, to have Thanksgiving back at my childhood home since, oh. I guess, 2019. So uh, mm-hmm. that, was, that was a special thing for sure, to actually get to be with people again on Thanksgiving and not have anybody worried about, you know, masks or COVID or any of those things. I mean, yeah. we're worried about them to the normal amount everyone is, but... It's different. Yeah, it was just nice yeah. to remember that there's some things that can come back to some sense of normalcy after enough time. Yeah. I like that. Did you want to share about your Thanksgiving or... <laughs> um. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I just cooked some stuff. I I actually... Okay, so the weekend prior, I went to Boston on a solo trip to see a show, but really as well to see Tar finally at Coolidge Corner Theater. I don't think you told me you saw that, did you? I think maybe I did. I don't think we've talked Tar. We haven't (laughs) because I know you saw it too. I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I finally saw it. Unfortunately, it was in like the itsy bitsy screening room, but Mm. it didn't matter. I was like completely blissed out. I got a huge, like irresponsibly huge amount of dim sum for brunch beforehand and then brought like egg tarts into the theater and like progressively ate them (laughs) as the movie unfolded. And so it was truly like... You always have the best movie experiences. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like blissful. Yeah. (laughs) But did you like it? It really made me grateful for having had all that conversation with Fran about the New York Film Festival because I would never have picked up, for example, on the the finger guns as as a moment in the film had it not been for her eagle eyes. Yes. As usual, seeing things through the prism of Fran's perceptual apparatus is extremely exciting. Always wonderful. It was thrilling, funny, super weird, super menacing, and also really elegant. That's, yeah, Yeah. apt description for sure. I think we might have talked really briefly because I do remember the finger guns comment uh, yeah. that you told me. We but... might have slapped about it or something, yeah. Because I started, uh, when it came out on streaming, I decided to try and watch it again. And just as Fran had told me, uh, it, it was a much different experience. Kind mm-hmm. of the second time as you're going in knowing in advance kind of what you're about mm-hmm. to watch. And, and uh, more people than her have made this point by now, but really just the comparison to Phantom Thread. Yeah. In terms of the, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis first comes on the screen to be in that movie, it's funny to me now mm. just because I know I know he's frustrated about something I think is what Fran had said <laughs> and the, it's the same thing when they when they when Kate Blanchett is you know after the, the long credit sequence of all the yeah. music in it then that first shot and right around I saw her I was just like the first time I didn't know what to expect mm. the second time I just started chuckling a little I was like oh this is gonna be so good <laughs> she's gonna be tar monster mode yeah, yeah. it was just uh yeah anyway We've overtalked Tar probably over the last couple of episodes, but probably. But I just want to say one more thing, which is that, like, yeah, like La Blanchette, amazing, but also Nina Haas. Like, yeah. I'm such a huge fan of Christian Petzold's films, and you do love him. Yeah. To see her in Tar was just tremendously yeah. exciting as like an import of something that I like very much. Yeah. yeah, Todd Field, interesting, interesting director. Great, great dude. Let's get him on the pod. Okay. I will give him a call. <laughs> yeah. Todd Field, if you're listening, we want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, a much different but still very great film today. We do. Yeah. For recovery month. So why? <laughs> I have to say this theme is funny to me. Why are we doing it? So the idea was that the word recovery is so closely tied, obviously, to 
to drug and alcohol addiction or addictions of various sorts. Mm. Um, that was not the way we were meaning to use it, though we were mm. fine with having it then. Did you mean it more in like the football way or? No, no sports involved there. Okay. No, it was really just about like now that I've had time to think about it, renewal might have been a better word. Mm. The idea of it was just any kind of recovering from anything, which is why mm. the essays are all over the place in terms of like, you know, there's this, there's one on Sound of Metal. Mm. The guy I know in the film was a former addict, but the, the film is not about that type of recovery. It's about mm. recovery into a new life. And don't need to go into all of Sound of Metal, but I love that film too. <laughs> um, and there was stuff like on The Wire and a uh, character arc of Bubbles in The Wire who had, you know, over the course of the six seasons gone through this whole journey. So there are actual recovery stories uh, that were being written about, but there's also all kinds of other things. So it's it's not a specifically, you know, like addiction focused issue or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. It was supposed to, like most of the things we try to do, we try to have words that allow a wide berth of interpretation. Mm. I do think this word was just too well known that a lot of people are just like, oh, this is going to be all about, you know, people going to rehab. And, you know, that's not, <laughs> not what the issue was. There's, there's no 28 days or what is it? No, 20? Is no. That the number uh, even for the well, yeah, one of them's a zombie film? movie, and one of them's the Sandra Bullock one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, was, I couldn't tell you which was which, but um, nobody submitted anything on that one. So bummer. Okay. I, I don't remember. I know I didn't choose this one, but I know that I was very happy to have it chosen. Mm. Who did? Was this an Eli recommendation? Oh yeah. The film. This was our producer and editor, Eli Sands. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you, Eli. Critical. <laughs> Do you want to say the name of the movie and then I can introduce our guest and we can start talking through it? Of course. We're talking Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory. Yay. Yay. So joining us today, uh, our special guest is Kelsey Ford, uh, who has been on the podcast before, but never with Veronica or I. She, I believe, was on the Green Knight podcast with Fran. And was there anybody else? Zosha, too. Zosha. Okay. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. Zosha. Yeah. This is our first time altogether recording one, so this is cool. And she was willing to hop on because she's a wonderful person who can help out. But also she liked pain and glory from what I'm sure people are getting tired about hearing how we stock letterbox stuff. But I was like, okay, who likes this movie? Uh, and I saw Kelsey had a similar reaction actually to what mine ended up being, which was something about, it was beautiful. I can't believe it took me this long to see it or something, mm. something to that effect. And that was like two years ago. So, so I'm really behind because I had that same reaction. Like, why on earth had I not seen this yet? Kelsey is, uh, among other things, uh, a senior editor at Brightwall Darkroom. She has been writing or doing other things for Brightwall Darkroom for eight years now. Uh, I had to do the math there really quick in my head. A fabulous, wonderful person. She's also the managing editor at Powell's Books. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her two cats, and she has an MFA in fiction from UC Davis, and she is here to help us talk through pain and glory. So welcome, Kelsey. Welcome, Kelsey. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how are you? Doing pretty good, you know, getting through it. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be the theme of today's pod, I think. Let's recover it. Yeah. Maybe we'll do synopsis first. Okay, that sounds good. And then get right into it. Let's do it. All right. So in Pain and Glory, which is from 2019, longtime Almodovar collaborator Antonio Banderas plays Salvador Mayo, an esteemed Spanish director based in Madrid, whose gorgeously appointed apartment belies creative and physical stagnation. He suffers from a number of chronic conditions, which the film diagrams in these really zany, great vertigo-type illustrations, and he struggles to summon the motivation to make new work. 
The specter of past efforts hangs overhead as a repertory screening of his cult film Sabor prompts a reunion with his estranged star, Alberto Crespo, who's played by Asir Echendia, whose heroin addiction foreshortened their working relationship way back when. But now an older, more curious, less inhibited Salvador starts to experiment himself with heroin in a series of escalating trials that trigger flashbacks to a childhood spent in Paterna with his mother, Julieta, played in flashback by Penelope Cruz. What follows is a less kinetic, more languid contemplation of some of the usual Amodovar themes, queer desire, sexual initiation, performance and authenticity, artistic vocation, and autobiography. Yes. Right? Yeah. You nailed it. That's a beautiful synopsis once again. Thanks, thanks, thanks. <laughs> so yeah, where, where do we want to jump in? There's so much going on in that. Kelsey, I'd love to ask you how you first saw the film and what kind of struck you. Um, the, I mean, the first time that I really heard about the movie was right after seeing Parasite. Mm-hmm. Um, the friend I went with had like seen Pain and Glory the day before and was also talking about it um, and how much she had loved seeing the movie. And like for whatever reason in my mind, they're now linked because like it was mentioned simultaneously, even though they're obviously very, very different films. <laughs> but I ended up you know, not seeing it until it came out on streaming a few months later, which was my why did it take me so long to see this? Um, I think it took me three months. There's just so much about this that just really hits my sweet spots, like the questions about, you know, am I going to be able to create? What does it mean to create? How much do I cannibalize for my own life? What do I not touch for my own life? Like, am I more intimate with the things I'm not touching and writing about? Or does that put me at a distance from those things in my life if I'm not exploring them creatively as well? Mm. I just think the movie is so wildly tender. Mm. So tender. I'll also add, I, I've been doing this thing for the past few years where at the beginning of the year, I decide to focus on a director and I'll just mm. watch like a few of those movies, just kind of like focusing in on them. And El Motivar was my director for that year. So I like oh. was able to come into it with a little bit more background and just so being able to see like the reds and like mm-hmm. just how vibrant all of the characters were, but also how I think this movie does contrast quite a bit, which you pointed out in your synopsis, Veronica, with his other work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So being able to come in and see the way that it kind of engages with the other movies and that conversation was really wonderful. I love this movie so much. I think Wildly Tender is such a beautiful app description for yeah, this movie. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it was perfectly said. Yeah, because it does kind of retain that sense of like vibrancy that we see in his other work, but it's definitely not as kind of prone to camp maybe, mm-hmm. or even to like kind of a kitsch sensibility as stuff like Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which I love, or like Matador, which mm-hmm. I saw in grad school and and thought was just like unbelievable. At the time, I had only seen more globally commercial films of his and Mm -hmm. you know when I saw Matador I was like oh like these (laughs) movies used to be very weird yeah and really like psychosexual (laughs) which is totally up my alley so (laughs) Veronica when did you first see it I saw it in the theater. I was trying to kind of see as much of the 2019 releases as possible. Okay. He makes a lot of films, so sometimes they miss me, you know? Like, I've probably only seen, since I've been a movie-going adult person, like 50% of the releases in their first run theatrically. But Mm. this one I saw, I saw alone, and I just thought it was, like, really quiet and incredibly meticulous and beautiful in the mise-en-scene, which I think we do come to expect. But... Also, I don't know, there is just so much intimacy and sexiness as well in this film that's just not as explicit or exaggerated as his other films. But if anything, feels 
more exciting because it's like desire that is inextinguishable or like more hard won or something at this point in my life. Like that's a lot more compelling to me. It's a great point. In every way, intellectually, sensually, in every way than some of the like splashier stuff that he did earlier in his career. Yeah. And he's done, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head, uh, he's done one more film since then or has he done two? I mean, I know he's definitely did Parallel Mothers. And then he had this short that I haven't seen with Tilda Swinton. Mm -hmm. Oh, I haven't seen that one, yeah. I saw the Tilda Swinton short. I think it was on Mubi or HBO Max or something for a little bit. Oh. It looks like it's shot in an apartment that's decorated by the same interior designer as the one that Salvador Mayo lives in in Madrid. It's a perfect apartment. I want to live in that apartment. <laughs> I want to have the little, you know, shots of tequila and hang out on those <laughs> totally. As someone who is drinking tequila at this very moment in honor oh, wow. of the film, I totally agree. <laughs> the other thing that is really interesting to me was, in addition to the stuff that Kelsey said about the creative process and all the questions about how, how things come to be the way they are and, and represented versus, you know, lots of different cool stuff in there that I totally loved, but also the fact that he was just being so directly personal mm, mm -hmm. i'm sure there's parts of him in all of his films quite a bit mm -hmm. but at the same time this one is actually like drawing really heavily from facets of his own life and i think i included in the the notes i'm sure you guys probably saw too like he was having antonio banderas wear his actual clothes in a lot of the mm. scenes he was taking stuff from his own apartment like the paintings and other things from Almodovar's apartment putting them in the character's apartment it had some funny quip in one of the the interviews about like yeah if we weren't sure what that was like. Someone would just run to my apartment and, you know, grab the thing or look at it or whatever. So, you know, that's not unintentional, obviously, mm -hmm. or just for convenience sake. So I was really fascinated by that aspect of it, too. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that I wanted to know everything about everything. I'm just more curious about how you choose as an artist to fictionalize in a semi-autobiographical way some of that stuff instead mm -hmm. of putting it into, you know, little bits and pieces of other characters or other situations. He really mm -hmm. is. I mean, he even had him do the same I mean, no one can do the same hairdo as him, but he had Antonio Banderas try to do a simulation-ish approach to the hair. <laughs> so, and then also just working with Antonio Banderas, who he yeah. you know, started working with like 30-some years ago. Yeah. Um, and to trace the arc of that and to, of course, have Penelope Cruz in it. It was just all the things that uh, I love about him just in a, in a very different key, but uh, it was all the mm -hmm. good stuff still. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised by that. I was, did not know what to expect. I have no real good reason that I have not seen it because I'm a really huge fan of his and had seen pretty much every movie he's done since at least the mid-80s and mm -hmm. then just missed this one and then somehow forgot that it existed and then I was like, oh my goodness, I have mm -hmm. a huge gaping hole here in my uh, Almodovar filmography. So Pain and glory sized hole. A pain and glory. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that. <laughs> There's so many things to like note about this film, right? Like so many angles really to sort of like enter it. And we've said a little bit about the self-referentiality, which we can kind of trace throughout the film. Yeah. And I know we, similar to talking about Tar the past couple of episodes, <laughs> we also keep talking about Joanna Hogg. But there's <laughs> some big yeah. hog heads on the bright wall staff, <laughs> myself among them. And like the souvenir films and Eternal Daughter, like these are also films that seem totally obsessed with these questions mm -hmm. that you were just bringing up, Kelsey, about like what you can do in terms of art making around your own life, where the limits are of that, whether in your practice or sort of more ethically or in terms of your memory even or something. 
this is a movie that features the flashback so heavily and is kind of toggling between these like a past and a present moment in order to it seems like exploit the confrontation between these two times for the most dramatic kind of potential that they have and then we also have in addition to past and present like the sort of staged artistically rendered version of reality and then reality reality which in a number of scenes creates this really intense encounter where they're brought into the same space and time and characters emote really explicitly and we just kind of watch Mm -hmm. them do that yeah so which i don't know for both of you i'm wondering Mm -hmm. like which parts of the movie feel the most enterable or resonant like what angle really struck you kelsey what moments speak to you I'm so glad that you brought up the souvenir because I think it's in my letterbox review of the souvenir. And I believe it's part two, but I, the ending of part two is the zoom out, right? Mm-hmm. And I just said, any movie that can pull this off, five stars for me. I, I know that I already said Pain and Glory lives alongside Parasite, but Pain and Glory lives alongside <laughs> the souvenir part two so much more for me because mm-hmm. of it, oh. because there is all of those like echoes and reverberations between mm-hmm. them. They feel so thoughtful and kind that they mm-hmm. exist, I think also. Can I ask what you mean by what you mean by thoughtful and kind? I am so grateful when artists give us their brain. Ah. Like both of those movies feel like they unzipped their skulls a little bit and we're just like, here's the mushy parts of me. Mm-hmm. Here's the pieces that, you know, I write into these stories. And if you look at me other stories, you'll find those veins there too. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. I just think it's an incredible act of like generosity, honestly, to have these exist. Love it. Generosity is absolutely the word, I think. That's it. It's so great that it comes across that way, right? Because in order to make a film like this, there must be like a lot of active being in process with your own like reflections of what it means to make art, to be an artist, to like live as an artist beyond the moment of initial success. I think that's something really interesting about this film that we are meeting Salvador Mayo kind of initially at like the very like onset of his life and this flashback of him remembering his mother Mm -hmm. also kind of performing in this like group sing-along moment at like a riverbed (laughs) it's like a really biblical looking kind of scene that was interesting (laughs) yeah but then ultimately when we find him in the present time he is successful ostensibly rich established and yet that too is a kind of burden in terms of creating new work and even just being the person that he's become. This time I was incredibly struck by the chronic pain aspect of it Mm. Mm. because I I mean obviously I remember from the first time I watched it and obviously it has such like a thick resonance throughout you know it's why he tries heroin it's why he's struggling with um, whether or not he's going to be able to make something again but that was something that like I really that really really struck me because you know he's asking all these questions about how do you create? What do you create? While he's also asking, like, am I going to create again? Or am I done? Mm. Yeah. Like, is my body deciding that I, I can't keep doing this? Which I think is such a devastating thing. That movie Frank also absolutely dev- devastated me for that same reason. Um, a very obscure reference, but... The one with the... The robot? The big head? With the head. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. Do you remember when Andrew <laughs> did, like, that little audio thing on it, like, six or seven years ago? It was so good. I love that movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. It made me sob for that reason. <laughs> I feel like we have the makings of a really weird letterbox list. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should do like, we could do that. Films referenced on the podcast this month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, connect the dots. 
And in this movie, too, we also get Amadover's obsession with mothers, yes. which I'm pretty into, I have to say. I mean, this one was really all about his mother. No, <laughs> bad joke. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> what did you notice about the moms? Because you just wrote moms on the docs. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I want to talk about moms in the mood for moms. <laughs> There's like a reverence for the mother in this movie mm-hmm. that I find really touching. And it's from like the very opening scene when we have the camera's close attention to like young Salvador's face and he's loving watching his mom sing basically with these other women. And she's like drying laundry kind of idyllically on some hedges outside. Later in the film, there's an indication that money is a material obstruction to having like the right kind of life and that Mm. his propensity for like words and language and literacy is something that's going to help eject him from the kind of poverty that he was born into. But in that earlier moment, that's a scene that pairs back all the like worldly considerations so that all we get is fascination with his mother's beauty and presence in a way that's really childlike and I think unusual to see it contemplated so explicitly in a film. Really agree. There's also that incredible scene toward the end that I haven't been able to stop thinking about where she's living in the apartment with him. She's saying that she wants to go back to the village to die and you can tell that that's painful for him. Mm -hmm. And she tells him that she's disappointed in him and the way that that was played was incredible to me because I think Mm -hmm. normally in scenes like that, there would be some kind of defensiveness or some kind of, how dare you say that to me? And it would become this fight. But instead, like you could see the heartbreak in his face and he was like, okay, I'll do better. Mm. And that just like, just so wildly moving and such like Mm. a, like you said, like reverential turn within that scene where you think, you know, it's coming and it's this other path that he takes instead. But yeah, I mean, everything with the mom, so wildly, wildly moving. I know. It's so painful. And I think that pain is just an automatic result of seeing her young and uh, strong and kind of hard-headed and resourceful and insistent. And then seeing her just enervated and small. I mean, that really reminds me of my own mom and like watching her age and how film is this medium that can give us both and make the transformation palpable in an economical amount of time and then by doing so cut to a feeling that is more or less universal which is just like the absolute grief of understanding that things expire and I I was thinking about that scene too Kelsey and also when he's like telling later his assistant I promised her that I would take her back and then she died like before I could do so. Mm. And I feel so bad because I did promise her and I didn't keep my promise. It's just like too difficult to sit with. I mean, as a writer, (laughs) writing those scenes right after each other, it's just like, you're so good. You're like, you're such a, like, (laughs) what good good writing? Pedro. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think about a lot of scenes, but that is one that, that definitely sticks with me a week later. Just for all the reasons you guys beautifully described. And yeah, being being a son of, of a mother <laughs> uh, who imagines that an arc that's already started long ago, mm-hmm. started when I was born. <laughs> and over time, how you slowly change places uh, to mm-hmm. become the caretaker and not the caretaken. And uh, how that is so universal if you're lucky enough to have a parent that lives a long life and mm-hmm. that that's 
that's what happens at the end. And so to be able to depict that on screen, a scene like that, I'm specifically thinking of yeah, the scene when he's with her and she's telling him, you know, that he hasn't been the best son and all that stuff. To be able to do that scene without tipping even slightly in any direction towards being like modeling or not that that's the point of that, but there, there's not a false note in it. Like it feels totally perfect for the moment that it occurs in in the movie. It feels totally realistic to what we've been building towards. It feels totally in character for everything. And then also like you guys were both saying, it's so universal and just so eminently relatable and thus so deeply painful to watch. For everybody involved, you know, like the, the pain goes both ways, like the pain of disappointing a parent in some way and the pain of how time passes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just a beautiful, beautiful, sad scene. Mm-hmm. Breaks your heart. And thankfully, the movie doesn't end there. What, what a moment. What a relatable moment. And then alongside these moments of highs and lows with mothers, with the mother, we also have Salvador exploring and processing his relationships with men. Yeah. Specifically, his former collaborator who starred in Savor, the film that has the rep screening where (laughs) they're meant to introduce it together and things get a little sidetracked. (laughs) I really love all of that, all of the reunion with Alberto. Very different tone. (laughs) Yeah, like his taking up of this I was about to say screenplay, but I guess it's a it's just a play play, a script. <laughs> something he wrote, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a script, kind of like a one-man show, yeah, that is based on his old lover who then incidentally like walks by the poster for the show, sees it. And can you even imagine like what that would be like to walk <laughs> into a performance? Almodovar. <laughs> and it's like a monologue that you realize instantly is talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've had probably dreams like that. (laughs) Wild. So wild. So wild. And I love the way the camera kind of toggles between the reaction shots that really give us like the weeping, like the recognition that is not just being touched by the art form and the performance, but obviously like brought into some kind of unforeseeable contact with the past. And then the performance itself, which is also staged in a really kind of interesting, beautiful way. And also just a, a minor piggyback on that one to say like that what you put out into the world, you never have any idea how this is going to change your life. Meaning that he fought hard to not even have that thing produced. And then he only had it produced as part of, I'm forgetting all the details, but part of some deal in order to get, it wasn't to get heroin. It was to, what was the reason that he finally, he brought the script over to his house and said, you can make this. I think because he felt bad because he had said some mean things about his uh, Alberto's performance in Sabor, okay, which is itself okay. also an incredible scene. <laughs> you know, where yes. you see him like not be able to shut up about that when they're on speakerphone mm-hmm. with the with the live audience hearing his criticisms of oh my incredible, yes. <laughs> incredible. So anyway, if he hadn't made that decision to insult uh, him in front of a live audience then he never would have given his play to this guy who then never would have made it, and this guy never would have seen it. I love stuff like that, too, and it, obviously Almodovar plays around with that in a lot of his films, but yeah. coincidences, things like that. Well, that is precisely the stuff of melodrama to complete the Bright Wall Dark Room podcast bingo board. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Our center tile. It's definitely a movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Lisa Dombrowski <laughs> laid it out really, really well in the melodrama issue, which I would encourage listeners, once they're finished, to hop back to that episode uh, on I Am Love and melodramas in general, because she is a, a master of the medium when it comes to melodramas and explaining them for us. So absolutely, the coincidences. So I guess what I'm coming away with talking through it now is resonances, echoes, and coincidences, which are all things I love in movies. Mm -hmm. To Kelsey's point, as a writer, you can't help but just be in awe of like, man, that is good. It's good writing. It's good plotting. It's good revision. However, he got to the point where all those pieces fit into that way that he put them together. That's the part of when you're just like, yeah, he's, of course, he's a master of film. I don't, but I don't think you can make this film when you're 30 years old. You got to make this film when you're nearing your 70s, if not, he's somewhere around 70, I think. It just reflects the passage of time very well in a way that I feel like has lived through before he got to the writing of it. Yeah. And I think that it takes experience writing, like those 100,000 of hours mm-hmm. been writing to know how to walk that fine line of you know, what you were talking about, Chad, of like how to pull off a scene, you know, the scene with his mom without turning the audience off or going to maudlin. The other coincidence that I was thinking about was the absolutely astounding coincidence of the portrait of him and finding it in that gallery and just like, no, no other movie would that be okay. Like, that's insane that that happened. But like, in this movie, it's so wonderful. (laughs) The line that he says, you know, it reached it, the person it was meant for eventually. How many decades later? I, I think my contribution to this pod is mostly calling out scenes that I thought were really good. That's the point. So that is another scene that I thought yeah. was really good. Talking about the scenes that we love, is that's what we're here for. Uh, one thing I was just really quickly going to circle back to um, regarding the, the mom's point that Veronica was talking about. Normally my experience is like most of probably uh, Veronica's and the people that come on the show. I usually watch the movie the night or two before, so it's somewhat fresh in mind, so I have some reactions. The experience of... Seeing this a week ago, well, a week and a day ago, and then purposely slashed enough time, not watching it again right before this, I have memories of my experience of watching it, which is a little bit different than usual. So this is something you guys can tell me if it checks out. In my head, I feel like he shoots a lot of the Penelope Cruz scenes with a slight camera uplift and a little bit of angelic light around her at times, not in like an overly obvious way, or I've imagined that because of how he portrayed her in that reverential light. So I don't know if it's true. (laughs) I am making myself vulnerable to being ridiculed. I don't know if that happens. That's my memory of it. Even if it's not there, he basically made me remember that it was (laughs) and how he shot her scenes. I don't know about like a difference in film stock or like a difference in digital that would emulate a change But I do think as an effect of the setting of like the cave. Or maybe she's always in the sun. Yeah. And then the cave stuff too. Yeah. So he has this childhood memory of basically moving underground (laughs) into like a (laughs) hobbit house. Into the cave. Yeah. Into a whitewashed hobbit house. That is a place where you can live and it (laughs) gets refurbished or made like increasingly inhabitable by this like hot young guy who is handy and lives in the village. And this, of course, is the artist who not only whitewashes the cave house and also puts up some beautiful handmade tile work. With the tiles. But also in like an sort of errant moment, like finds himself sketching young Salvador, which is the art piece that Kelsey was just sort of telling us about that he re-encounters. So beautiful too, yeah. As if, yeah, literally recovering from memory in terms of how he discovers it again and ends up shuttled back in time. And that there's a note a note on the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, oh. 
So good. Yeah. I think, But in terms of the quality of light around Penelope Cruz, I think because of the way that setting is constructed so that there's a, an effectively a skylight that creates a kind of corona of light around whomever is kind of mm. walking underneath it. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, maybe that's what I'm kind of juxtaposing. I think yeah. that might be part of it. And it's also a really kind of like cold quality of bright light yeah. as opposed to the really like warm, yeah, saturated lighting that we see in the apartment okay. in Madrid. Yeah. I knew you'd, I knew you'd re remember and be able to explain it. <laughs> Come on. But I also think it's fascinating the way memory works where, me too. My memory is that it was that she was kind of radiant at times, or at least there was a lot of sun. And, and again, now I'm thinking through it, and it was just there's not a lot of scenes of him as an adult walking around in sunlight. <laughs> yeah, he's not really leaving the house. I feel like he's in a lot of medical light, which is mm. an awful thing, or or night light, or you know, apartment light, or whatever. But yeah, yeah, more coincidences. I would really love to talk about a scene which immediately follows. Federico, his former lover, seeing the play performance that directly implicates him, which is their mm. reunion back at the apartment. Speaking of remembering the film, when I think back to seeing this in the theater in 2019, this is to me like the central scene of the movie mm. is this like really freighted reunion of these two just remarkably good looking people. <laughs> <laughs> It's impossible, even though I've seen so much young Antonio Banderas, to imagine him being more arresting than he is in this scene. Either yeah. of them, really. They're so tender with each other. There's so much palpable chemistry between them. And, you know, they, they have this kind of what have you been doing all this time conversation. Federico narrates his trajectory of getting married and having a kid. And you can see a sort of response to that on Salvador's face, mm. which seems to me, I don't know how you interpret it as something like, disappointment or a kind of, oh, yeah, you know, a, like, a, uh, oh, like, did you turn out yeah. to be straight or not? If not to be straight, then to like live a straight life. Like, mm -hmm. was there a real expiration date to the kind of life that we were living together? And does that have any effect on whether it was actually real or not? And then as Frederico's leaving, he's like walking him out. There's like a one more for old time's sake kind of embrace mm -hmm. at the door that could not be hotter, honestly. <laughs> or hungrier. That yes. was the hungriest, like most open mouth, like let me consume <laughs> you in this like instant. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I just wrote that I love so many lines. I should say there is a, this is not often the case as someone who has to look through a lot of movie websites. The actual screenplay to this film is online, the English version of it, uh, from directly from the Sony Classics website. So, mm. But near the beginning of the film, I just, so when he's talking about that movie that he'd made, when he he was rewatching that, which is another another interesting thing about how he was able to see his own creation in a much different light once he'd had like thirty years space from it, and he just said it, you know, it felt like a different film. And then mm. the person commented, "It's your eyes that have changed, darling. The film is the same." Mm -hmm. That's such a great true thing about how movies work. Movies are, of course, by nature, unless George Lucas is involved, they're the same every, you know, from when you saw them when you were young. But your experience of them changes so much, which is something that you know, obviously so many essays have touched on in one form or another on the site and in general. Just how we, we change to, we, we bring different versions of ourselves to movies when we watch them at different times. So I really love that line a lot. The one scene that we all mentioned in the planning doc as wanting to talk about is the final scene of the film and particularly the kind of final series of shots where we see Salvador and his mother together in a train station. 
her not having realized like making a mistake that they thought they could catch another train and they can't. So they have to spend the night in the station, which for me, it always takes a second to understand what's happening, like where they are, because it's a pretty tight <laughs> shot. And they're clearly on some kind of bench and she's making it up like a bed. But until they zoom a little bit further out or say like, there's not another train, that's the moment I realize exactly where they are and what's happening. And then we also see her, this is my favorite part of the scene, assemble a chocolate and bread sandwich <laughs> and give it to him to eat. There's something really memorable about that for me. And then as the moment persists, we zoom out and we sort of get this like meta staging moment where the sort of sense of a proscenium falls away. And what we see is all the apparatus of recording and Penelope Cruz as Penelope Cruz for like a moment, mm -hmm. kind of like rousing the actor or pretending to rouse the actor who plays young Salvador. <laughs> yeah. So Kelsey, like what about that scene really strikes you? So many things. And I think every time <laughs> I start to think about it, I have a different thing that I kind of land on. Yeah. But the first thing is that it works, you know, and it, it's a gambit for, you know, a director to put in a scene like this because mm. it would be very easy for the audience to feel cheated by the it was just a dream kind of framing. Right, yeah. right. But I think that it works so well because if we hadn't taken that step back, if we hadn't seen that it was a film set, we would have felt just as secure in the story mm -hmm. so it's just adding another layer to what we thought we understood or how we thought we understood the story and then I also love it so much as an answer to the you know to the question that I was rattling on about earlier like this question of like is he going to create again mm -hmm. you know and we see the yeah. camera pans over to his face and you can see just how like happy he is that mm -hmm. like he is going to create again and this is mm -hmm. a story he's told and it's also, also a story about his mom which was a question that had come up earlier in the film like why don't you tell stories about me when he didn't? Mm. And then I think that also just that moment that you referenced, Veronica, where Penelope Cruz kind of like rousing the young boy also just felt so tender. And mm -hmm. it felt like a really nice little gift to give Salvador just to see the representation of yeah. his mom being tender with the young version mm -hmm. of himself, which just that that really st stuck out with me on this most recent watch. The list could go on, but th those are a lot of the things that I love about <laughs> That's the That's beautiful. I hadn't even yeah. thought about the sort of like therapeutic healing potential oh, of yeah. staging the scene of your own comforting or reassurance by a parent in the absence of that parent in real life. That's a great point. Then you also have Almodovar directing that scene that we're watching being directed that's about likely something to do with his own mom. So the, the layers build. Russian doll style. Yeah. I mean, it's really, and, and also just just on a craft level, you know, not even touching the the emotions and the reveals and the how everything uh, kind of hits you in that moment of what all of this was that you realize started with the very beginning of the film with the scene of them singing on the riverbank and stuff. Uh, that all of that was part of this film. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, just the 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 craft of I'm always really drawn to stuff where it's a it, it's a it's a line from a Yeats poem, something about the click of a well made box, mm -hmm. where it's really just like everything snapping into place. It just feels like once you've seen that, you can't really imagine the movie ending any differently. If you weren't so touched, you'd want to just stand up and applaud of like, what art this is and what, what, a, what a well made everything. Like it just, I don't like neat pat endings in general. And this, I guess, could be cynically construed as like, oh, you know, it's all a dream, whatever. But this one, again, to, to Kelsey's point and probably to Veronica's, it was so, so well earned. 
for one thing, but also just it's a culmination of the character's journey in a way where you see that he's creating again, like Kelsey was saying. So you get that plot point wrapped up in a positive way that's not cheesy at all. Hmm. And you get this big like, whoa, I just have to reevaluate everything that I just saw before through this lens of what I now know. And that's why the mom in the old scene looked nothing like Penelope Cruz. Hmm. There's just a lot of different things. And then also you just feel totally satisfied. It doesn't leave you like hanging on like, wait, well, there's no mystery that, you know. So to do all of that within a context of a very subtle Almodovar film that's still full of all the coincidences of melodrama, I don't know, it's just, it's art. I loved how it ended. I knew it was going to end well, which was the only spoiler I had about it because it's impossible to read more than a two or three letterbox reviews before everyone's mentioning the ending. So I didn't know how it would end. I just know that everyone's like that final shot, five stars, or the ending's so great. Or, so I knew there was going to be a good thing. And even then... I was not at all uh, disappointed or underwhelmed by what I eventually experienced. So that was my take. I thought it was fantastic. As perfect as an ending gets. Let's end there. All right. Last call. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) So, Kelsey, last call. Typically, we end every episode by asking everyone to share the last thing they watched recently and then a quick staff recommendation. So what is the last thing that you watched that wasn't pain and glory for this podcast? The last thing I watched was actually last night, I watched Bones and All. What did you think? Which I sincerely loved. I think it was just a very sweet movie. Like, it's thin, but sweet. Just like Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And bloody. Yeah, I think Veronica talked about that one. You saw that one at New York Film Festival. I did. Yeah, yeah. Did you you not like it? I didn't like it. I'm not surprised. But I think there's a lot of likable ingredients. Like, not to make Mm -hmm. a food metaphor for that movie but i you're always making food metaphors that's true but like uh, you know a lot of the things about it i (laughs) i think are things i'm usually really really into i have to account for the context of seeing it amid like so many other bangers (laughs) had i just watched it in a normal context which would be an 11 15 matinee at the providence place cinema (laughs) i probably would have felt differently Yeah, I went in with really low expectations. Mm. So I think my low expectations did well by me. Yeah. Were you (laughs) grossed out by it? No. Wow. (laughs) Hardcore. Is it gross? Yeah, I think it's pretty gross. Okay. (laughs) About cannibals. Yeah, I just, uh, that's going to be hard not to have it be gross, I guess. They eat people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I won't say what the bones and all are. Okay, and I was going to say, though, we do have an essay coming in for... The next issue. The um, best of issue? Yeah, sorry, the best of issue. Uh, in Jan- So not until January um, on mm. Bones and all. So so there will be some coverage of that. It's the one time each year when we cover actually like somewhat modern films. So uh, that's always exciting to look forward to. But Okay. Kelsey liked it. Veronica didn't like it as much. And I have not seen it. So I think we have all three viewpoints right there. All three? Those are all three? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there would have to be the fourth of like someone who's watched it every day since it's come out. I love that. But, yeah. <laughs> all three viewpoints. Yep. Yes, no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, undecided. Yep. All right, Kelsey, what's your staff reco for us? I'm going with Resurrection, which is a really great horror starring Rebecca Hall from this last year that mm. I had no context for going in. Um, Rebecca Hall is, you know that she's going to give a fantastic performance. And there are just so many weird pivots and turns that the movie takes that I found thrilling and unnerving. And like that one really got under my skin. Mm. So that's my recommendation. Is that streaming somewhere? I hope so, but I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> great. I saw not that one, but 
the other horror film that she was in this past year? The Night House, which Night House. I also recommend. I thought that was mm. so, so good. So scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kelsey watches all the horror. I know. And Veronica yeah, watches a I lot of the that. horror. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and you guys let me know which are the ones that would probably be okay for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no bones at all for me, but what about, should I watch Resurrection? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not that I get scared. Like if it's just gross, I can handle gross. It's it's more of the 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 spiritual horror stuff. The stuff that really gets to me. So as long as there's no like, yeah, no, don't watch Resurrection. I know nothing else about it. I love Rebecca Hall though, so that's how I end up watching most of the horror ones that I watch. Is I was like, I love an actor so much, mm-hmm. I want to see whatever. So I mean, she's great. Oh, I love her so much. And Tim Roth is in it, and he shows up just on insane mode. It's wonderful. Okay, I like that too. Yeah, it's like he showed up and was like, I have this character I've been wanting to do. Let's go with it. Although I'm not, I know the writer wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Always give credit to the writer. Yeah, yeah. Not a pop quiz here, but any idea who made that movie? It looks like it was directed by Andrew Siemens. That sounds right. Awesome. Yeah. Great job, Andrew. Good job, Andrew. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. Cool. Thanks for those recommendations. Anytime. Okay, that's a wrap on Pain and Glory. Thank you, Kelsey, for joining us uh, and and for contributing so much wonderful thought and language to this podcast. And I was also wondering, as we're heading out, we always like to say, where can we find you online? Uh, So go ahead and plug anything you want to plug or say how to find you. Yeah, I am Kelsfjord, K-E-L-S-F-J-O-R-D, which is a play on my last name, Ford, that I'm stuck with. I'm (laughs) Kelsfjord on Twitter and Instagram. And thanks so much for having me, you guys appreciate yes and uh kelsey recently had a story published in the chicago review called ghost baby which i believe you can find online as well kelsey you can find it online great so seek that out kelsey is a fantastic writer not just with her bright wall essays she's got plenty of other writing she does that's always worth checking out thanks again kelsey it was great having you here thanks so much and to read this month's issue, you, as always, visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR, or alternatively and much less frequently, the BWDR podcast uh, is also a Twitter handle that we use for exclusively the show. Or if you're absconding from the Muskiverse, uh, subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates on every issue and new essays as they drop. I would love to see us break 200 followers on the BWDR <laughs> podcast Twitter account. Well, the problem is that every account that anyone has is losing all kinds of followers as people are leaving. I know. I lost like 30, which for me is, that's a lot. Oh, we lost a few thousand on the Brightwall Dark <laughs> Well, yeah, but you, yeah. I mean, the numbers, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but uh, that I didn't see that Musk verse line there in, until I had to read it, and uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of alternative social platforms for us, yeah. This actually might be a good chance to say, uh, if you're going to stay on Twitter, but Twitter itself goes down, or if you leave, or whatever, that in addition to the newsletter, uh, that we would always be findable through the website, also through the mailing list. We have plenty of ways to find us online. If Twitter goes up in flames, don't hesitate to seek us out in other places. And we're also starting to build up our letterbox account as well. Are we not on Tumblr as well? Good memory. We restarted, uh, well, rejoined. We had not done anything on Tumblr for three or four years, which was where the original website started Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2009. Long time. Mm -hmm. And it's where we uh, got our feet wet and learned how to do this whole uh, version of what we do. So 
lots of fun we had on there over the years. And then once we transitioned into the online magazine, we stopped using that nearly as much. Mm. And then we stopped using it altogether a few years ago. But in the last week's Is Twitter Gonna Die worries, we went back to the Tumblr. So we do have quite a presence there over the years, and we'll also be adding stuff uh, moving forward there as well. Once I can figure out how it works now as an old on there. You can still go home again, apparently. <laughs> you can always go home again. <laughs> Pain and glory will be just me revisiting my and reactivating a Twitter <laughs> account. <laughs> You don't even have to follow our socials. If you just subscribe to the podcast, it will go right into your telephone every month. There you go. How exciting. So please subscribe. Um, share the podcast. That would be nice. Please rate the podcast. Give us a nice review if you're so inclined. Our ratings could be higher. I would love that. You you say that every time. Yeah. I know. Nothing happens. They're pretty good. Nothing. Everyone's like, we stopped listening you know, <laughs> like five minutes ago. And if... People would also visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash That would be so nice. And that's it. That's it. <sighs> See you next month. Happy holidays. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> People won't have to wait an additional month for another Bright Wall episode because <laughs> this one will come out in December and we will still have a regular December episode as well. Do you want to say as a little preview for the long listeners what that episode is going to yeah. be about, Chad? For next month, the issue is going to be romantic comedies, which uh, some of us are very excited about. And our podcast for longtime listeners, we have decided to make it a tradition to have Elizabeth Cantwell on every December and put out a podcast right around Christmas where the three of us talk about a Tom Cruise movie. So we did the, the obvious Christmas movie of Eyes Wide Shut last year, which is honestly our highest rated uh, or highest trafficked listen to podcast to date. And yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing the faces. Yeah, it's got the it's got the most downloads of any movie. It's probably because it's in that hot zone between Christmas and Hanukkah. <laughs> Something for everyone <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when it comes to Eyes Wide Shut. So anyway, we went with uh, Let's Go Bonkers on this one. And we are going to be discussing uh, the romantic comedy of Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky. So heads up, that's coming right around the end of the year. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm running out of new ways to do it. I'll just That go. was very new. <laughs> that was innovative. I'm a bi-influencer. That doesn't sound right. It just, I don't like, I don't like neat. Sorry, my dog. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like neat. I don't think my dog wants me to say this line. <laughs> <laughs>